0: Hello, everyone. I'm Adam Elwanger. This is episode four of Wither the Luniversity, where we talk about the fate of higher education and some of the problems we face um, in restoring it. With me today, I'm excited to have Jenna Robinson, who is president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. Um, They are based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, Jenna has a PhD in political science from UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, She's published widely She's published in investors business daily human events, Forbes, the American thinker, lots of great sites. Um, And in the course of our discussion today, if you get interested in the work of the Martin Center, we encourage you to check out their website and please sign up for their newsletter. Um, They have a lot of good uh, uh, stuff. And every once in a while, you'll find something written by yours truly there. Also, Um, Jenna, welcome.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So one of the the, the first questions that I have for you is, um, you've spent a lot of time as a student um, over the years, uh, and um, you did not opt for the professor route. Um, You're doing sort of, I guess, what amounts to advocacy work. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision not to take sort of the traditional academic career path?
1: Right, so part of it is just my own personality and the kind of work I like to do. I don't think I have the attention span to be a faculty member. And I found that out throughout my graduate work. After I finished my master's thesis, I decided I didn't wanna do any more work on that topic anymore. Picked a different topic for my dissertation. And then after I finished my dissertation, didn't ever wanna see that topic again either. And I know that for a lot of faculty members, you pick a topic and you stick with it. And I think that I would be I, I would be nuts by now if I had to do that. Um, my, I'm well the- on my way. <laughs> the quality of my work would not be high. Um, and so that was a major driver. Um, I also really liked public policy as I was doing political science, the coursework I did was kind of drifting closer and closer to public policy. So it seemed like a natural fit. And I think the last, um, the last reason, and here I'm gonna have, give a little dig at academia is that um, way more people read my writing. Oh yeah. So what I'm doing now than if I were um, doing academic publishing.
0: This was something that I figured out about uh, five years ago, uh, many years ago, when I was a graduate student, I saw a major figure in my field at an academic conference. And I said, why don't you publish stuff anymore? And he looked at me and he said, he's an old man. And he he just said, nobody reads the journals. Like I had asked a stupid question. And I learned very quick once I started writing for the public that if I spend a year on an academic essay and publish it, maybe I'll get 10 citations in the first two years or three years. If I write something for normal people, I might get two, 3,000 people to read it in the course of a week. Yeah. It's it's a lot more gratifying. I think more academics should do that. Stop writing for professors and start writing for um, sane people. (laughs) Um, So uh, tell us a little bit about the mission of the Martin Center.
1: So the Martin Center's mission is to improve higher education. And the way we do that is by focusing on state policy and board governance. And so we're looking for specific things that can be changed either by boards of directors or by state legislatures to improve the universities um, at which they work or in the states that they govern. Um, And so some of what we do is aimed at private universities, but the bulk of what we do is aimed at public universities. About 80% of students go to public universities. And so it makes sense that if we're going to reform, um, then the biggest Uh, areas for reform are public universities. And the things that we care about are academic quality, responsible governance, uh, academic freedom, free speech, and viewpoint diversity, cost-effective education solutions, and that means for both students and taxpayers, um, and innovative market-based reform. And so kind of within those buckets we look at a lot of different things. Really, if it has to do with higher education and it can be solved by a policy change, we're interested. And you guys, you kind of focus
0: on North Carolina institutions, but you also sort of uh, consider the national scene, right?
1: Right, absolutely. And, I, and most of that is because the problems we have here in North Carolina, the issues that go on at North Carolina universities are not unique to North Carolina. Uh, universities across the nation have the same issues, you know, Increasing tuition, uh, falling academic standards. Too few students are employed in their area that they um, that they got their major in. Too few students graduate. They're not state-specific issues.
0: Great. So I want to talk a little bit about that question of standards more specifically. And um, you know, you guys do work to raise standards in higher education. But one thing that I think about often. Is that even if we could succeed in doing that um, it seems that the standards have fallen so far in k-12 through 12 education that it's almost like even if we succeeded to sort of restore some standards to the university would we even have a sizable uh uh, uh feed of students that could meet the expectations um mm-hmm. and so i mean i wonder if you could just sort of talk a little bit about that and and if if we need to start, do we need to start in the K through 12 or, or is there a way we could do both at the same time? Or what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, I think it goes without saying that standards in K-12 should absolutely be addressed. It is a travesty that so many students get through, you know, third grade, fifth grade, ninth grade, and can't read at, at grade level. That's ridiculous. Um, And that should be addressed for sure. But I think that, Independent of what K-12 does, universities that purport to do university level work should keep standards high. And namely that is because university level work has an independent purpose that is unrelated to how, how qualified students are. The work that is done at universities, both for vocational training and for The discovery of ideas requires a certain amount of, you know, academic oomph. People have to be prepared for that if they're going to do meaningful work at the level that we should expect for for university-educated people, and even if that means there are fewer students available to go directly into a four-year school, then, you know, so be it. Obviously that's one of the problems that there aren't enough people available and universities want students in the seats to pay tuition. Um, and obviously the money is always the motivation for everything, but I think academic standards should be of paramount importance at universities that you know, they're claiming to do you know, world renowned um, era-changing work, and you can't do that if you're unprepared and unserious.
0: So, one uh, approach that I find a lot of um, uh, sort of conservative-minded people like myself often say is, "Well, we need to tighten the purse strings. That this is what legislatures need to do." And one thing that i think we're seeing in response to that like in texas where where i live and work there's been a little bit of that and i actually think that's contributed to lowering the standards um, because when the the universities realize all right we're going to have a budget shortfall then they just say well we have to admit more students and and they really mm-hmm. just don't care you know the level of preparation there um and so i think as a professor i get i'm faced with a very difficult task i have few very bright students in every class. I have a few uh, people who are, you know, need a little bit of work. And then I have some people who probably, you know, are not prepared for collegiate level work. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: it puts professors in this position where it's like, who do I pitch the course to? Do I pitch it to my five best students? Um, And just sort of discount everybody else. Do I pitch it at the middle and ensure that I'm still above the heads of the, the worst 10, but beneath what the best 10 are doing. Um, And so I think that is, is that a a viable option? Sort of tightening the purse strings. Should we have faith that the universities will, will not sort of cravenly uh, try to make up the deficit uh, in ways that will, will actually worsen the, the educational product?
1: I don't think that tightening the purse strings, you know, by say cutting state funding is the right answer to addressing academic quality problems. I think that the answer for academic quality problems is to address academic quality. Have real standards, enforce them, make them clear, and don't grant waivers or exceptions. And so I think it
0: needs to start basically with faculty and administration then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, most or boards, but mm-hmm. it, it has to be something that the university decides we are serious about academic standards, we do college level work here, and we're going to require that students are prepared when they come in. I think we should also, you know, either at the state level or university levels, not be afraid to admit that different universities serve different populations community colleges are a great place for students who are not quite ready they do often wonderful work to get students um kind of through that transition from high school to to universities or alternately they show students that the you know university sitting in a sitting behind a desk your whole life doing academic work is not for you and there's something else that's a better fit. Um, At the same time, I think universities, four-year universities should also maybe strive to diversify and not all of them chase R1. It makes no sense for every university to try to be an R1 university and for that to be their focus. Um, if, If a university is an undergraduate institution and wants to teach undergraduates well, then put the money in that and and focus on on doing that job well instead of you know chasing the journals or chasing big discoveries.
0: Would you agree that in general there are far too many people in the United States going to
1: college? Definitely Um, And when I say going to college, I definitely mean going to a four-year university. I don't mean pursuing some kind of post-secondary education because, you know, with as dumbed down as our high schools have gotten, it's often true that students do need to do something after high school in order to prepare themselves for the future. Um, But I do think there there are too many people getting generic majors at generic universities that they think will guarantee them a good job in you know in something white collar they're not sure what
0: i think students are starting to catch on to that 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 the the bachelor's degree is not the promise of sort of middle class security or sort of job satisfaction that we've produced far more um credentialed people than could possibly um, right Reap the rewards of that, and and I wonder, you know, how far off the reckoning is, like for universities when people get hip to that.
1: You know, my um, hope though is that the solution for those students who have cottoned on isn't to double down and go get a master's degree. Um, I think we've probably all seen the recent data from the Wall Street Journal about master's degrees that you know, by and large, really don't pay off, like even more so than the bachelor's degree. Um, and for years, I think people did go to that master's degree. You know, if one credential isn't enough, I'll get two. Um, so I hope that with this realization, which I think you're right, students are coming to the realization. I hope that they start looking for alternatives to a generic four-year degree rather than, you know, doubling down and doing more.
0: What are what, what alternatives of that sort exist right now? I mean, beyond just community college and sort of trade vocational schools, it, it seems mm-hmm. like it's almost like uh, the pressure to get gainful employment is so high that they're almost culturally we don't have a space built in to sort of experiment with different ways to prepare oneself for uh, making a living.
1: Yeah, I think in this, the tech industry is leading the way. And so there are a lot of employers in tech that now say they will hire without someone having a bachelor's degree. And so students have a lot of options of how they get prepared because the employer is just testing their skills as they come in to see, you know, can you do this work? I'm going to give you this test of of your skills right here as part of the job application. And if you can do it, then you're in. And obviously not all professions lend themselves to that as well as tech does um but i do think that that is that's what we can learn from is for employers to look at people's skills and what they're bringing to the table instead of the piece of paper that they have and i think that there are other um other jobs where people can easily prove that they are able to do what they say they're going to do uh like photography or graphic design you know those are things that you can demonstrate very clearly you know whether you have the chops to do a, a particular job. And so I think more jobs like that where, where demonstrations of skill are, are simple, are, those are the fields where we'll see people leaving traditional higher end. Um, other fields, especially fields where the state requires a license for which you have to go to college you know, accounting or engineering or law, medicine, people who want to go into those fields pretty much have to take the, you know, the four-year degree route. Um, But I think that in other fields, there's going to be a lot of breaking away.
0: So to shift gears a little bit, um, what's uh, there's, you know, signs that the Biden administration may try to vacate some amount of student loan debt um, for certain borrowers, um, there's some question as to whether or not he even has the authority to do this. But leaving that aside, um, it seems that they are not committed to addressing any of the drivers of cost, any of the things that, that would that create the massive amounts of loan debt that exist. So what's the Martin Center's take on this, on questions of sort of loan forgiveness, on, on how to address drivers of
1: costs, mm-hmm. those issues? So the Martin Center's take on loan forgiveness is that it's a terrible idea. Um, It's a moral hazard uh, for one. It's gonna show students in the future that they don't have to take college debt seriously because if if they do it once, they're gonna do it again. Um, It's regressive, which I think a lot of the supporters do not admit Uh, the major beneficiaries of any kind of student loan forgiveness, whether it's $50,000 or $10,000 are gonna be people who got college degrees who I think we all know that on average have higher incomes than people without college degrees. Um, I think just at its base, it is unfair to forgive this one particular kind of debt uh, without forgiving other types of debt. And as someone who's fiscally conservative, I'm not in favor of just kind of blanket forgiving debt. Um, you know, people, people if they say they are going to pay for something, they should do so. Um, all of that said, I do think that universities have been uh, you know, profligate in their spending and they have implicitly made promises to students that they can't keep. And so I do think that we need to address those things. Uh, one way I think that, that a start can be made is to allow student debts to be dischargeable in bankruptcy under certain circumstances. And that would not be a wild and crazy idea because it's how things were, you know, 20 years ago, I think, less than 20 years ago. Um, And it was not the case that, you know, every graduate was rushing to the bankruptcy courts to try to get out of student loans. It was rare. And so I think that if we go back to that position, then, We have addressed the most acute problems presented by student loan debt, because there are people who are really in bad situations. They can't get out from under the debt. There's nothing they can do. Um, And so if you put those bankruptcy protections back into place, then you've addressed the acute problem of the people who really are suffering. And then, like you said, you have to address the underlying cause. My solution for that is for universities to have skin in the game universities should be the co-signers underwriters whatever you want to call it for student debt so that if there is a default on the debt the university has to eat some of it and i think that that would change universities incentives in such a significant way that it would change their behavior and so that is my solution it is something that has been bandied about in congress a little bit certainly not under this administration uh, but in the past, it is something that has been discussed and I think that it should people should continue to push for that solution because anything else is going to be treating the symptoms instead of instead of treating the cause.
0: So it used to be that that banks issued loans. Um, right. And then a few years back, it became the government who issued loans, which mm-hmm. which means that universities have no fears about, um, the them being receiving the the money from any admitted student is there a way to pry the the sort of student loan industry loose from the fed now or is it uh is it there and, and we can't restore it to the old way where
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where uh,
0: that money was touchable
1: right well private student loans still do exist because there are caps on undergraduate federal student loans and so they're they are they are there for that purpose. They're also there for, you know, graduate students take out private loans. Uh, people who want to co- consolidate after leaving school take out private student loans. And so they, this is a product that still exists. Um, and so I don't think it's hopeless. Um, but one thing, you know, one of the reasons you can't discharge student loans in bankruptcy is because it's what the bankers wanted in exchange for making these unsecured loans. And so I don't know that banks would want to go back to the way it used to be be, unless they get to keep all these protections in place where it's, it remains guaranteed money. Hmm. And so I don't know that going to a private system with all of the current rules that we have would help anything.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, So I'll ask you the same questions I've been asking all the guests on this program. And the first one is, how did this happen? I mean, I think that uh, the university is in such a, a state of disarray as an institution in American life. Um, mm-hmm. I have been in universities since I was 18 years old as a freshman and, and lived and, and worked at a university ever since. Um, and it just seems amazing to me that in the span of say 25 years we've gone from the institution that we had when i started college to the one that we have now um and and i it's difficult for me to wrap my head around the dynamics <laughs> of exactly what happened do you have an account of it that you can
1: give i can ha- i can give a partial account and uh-huh. i think that you know i'm going to i'm going to follow the money to tell my story and That is that the free and cheap money that was made available for students to go to college created a bunch of unintended consequences. Um, The point of giving out federal student loans, which started in the 70s, was to make it so that students who were otherwise unable to afford to go to universities would have money available to do so. But the unintended consequences since then have been just exponential. Um, the first is that universities now knowing that this money is available, that the federal government is going to give grants and loans have felt like they can jack up tuition without any consequences. They know that the students will still come because they're not paying for most of it themselves, or at least they're paying for it with future money. And we all know that future money is not the same as money in your pocket right now. Very nice. And so- Universities just glibly raise tuition, knowing that the money is there. They're, they know that students are not going to be price sensitive anymore. And so that's, you know, that's part of the problem. Um, a consequence of all this tuition raising means that we're now obsessed with return on investment. And so it no longer makes economic sense for most students to go and focus on the liberal arts, to focus on truth, goodness, and beauty they have to make sure that they're going to get a return for all these for the money that they're putting in and their parents are telling them don't major in english you know go get a business degree and that probably works out for those students but it has been um, you know it has gutted the liberal arts it has gutted the humanities um, it means that the university isn't doing what it used to do. You know it's no longer dedicated to the search for truth. It is it's a degree production machine. Um, you know it also means that there's all this extra demand because you know money's not available to become an entrepreneur or, or at least cheap money isn't available. Uh, cheap money until the Trump administration wasn't even available to go to trade schools. Um, so, if you want someone else to underwrite the next step in your journey to a career, higher education is the only—the uh, only thing that the government's gonna gonna give you cheap money for. And so now we've got all this demand from students who are there for the wrong reasons. They're not interested in serious university work. They're not interested in you know the life of the mind. But this is the money that's available. And we also get the new conventional wisdom telling students that if they don't go to a four-year university, they're losers. And I think that's been hugely detrimental to a a lot of students who are either unprepared or just ill-suited to the kind of work that is done getting a four-year degree. You know, sitting behind a desk doing written work, doing, you know, scholarly activities, and because all of these students are there for the wrong reasons, who are unsuited for, for, various, um, for various reasons to universities, faculty have responded. You know, these are their, their, their customers, whether you like that word or not. And so then faculty feel like they have to dumb down their courses. They have to provide what students want, uh, they have to focus on um, skills instead of ideas. And I think all of that stems from this kind of one, the cheap money, and two, our our conventional wisdom that tells people this is this is what you have to do.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful account. <laughs> I will say, kids don't become an English major. I work in an English department, <laughs> um, and and I, I want to talk about that a little more because it's sort of like the, you know. The idea that students have been scared off of liberal arts and, and things like English is absolutely true. But like at this point, like those disciplines in practice are not somewhere we would want right. them to return to, you know. Um, English departments is are essentially now just sort of a, a, a site for woke indoctrination. They're not mm-hmm. you know, they're like, they're not about the good, the beautiful and the
1: true the lens of race, class, and gender. Come to the English department. We'll teach you how to be aggrieved.
0: That's what it is. And so, in this sense, like the 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 desire to sort of push the kids that are fleeing that ship back into it, um, <laughs> with the thought that uh, that they're going to get some uh, learning about aesthetics or or uh, or goodness or tradition is is just gone. They're going to read The Awakening and use it for a springboard uh for a critique of sort of feminism you know and and the patriarchy and everything else um and i wonder so talking about sort of wokeness the culture of the academy would you say that that too is linked to the the cheap money thing the influx in the 70s or is that sort of a wholly different phenomenon that's being driven by different factors
1: I mean, I think part of it is the cheap money. If, if there's cheap money from a source that isn't really paying attention to what the end product looks like, then you can be free to do things that are just like weird and inconsequential and that the public hates because the public isn't actually like, they have no feedback mechanism. And so, yes, the fact that there's just no accountability and, and, and they have these gobs of money to do frivolous things with. Sure. Um, but I think it's also that, you know, universities started out, and I think I've seen data on this, like maybe in the you know, in the 50s and 60s, they were a little bit uh, left of center. So they've always been left of center. But the very tools that we gave faculty for autonomy to preserve academic freedom, you know, things like, you know, like tenure and faculty governance, uh, they kind of blew up. And so we ended up with faculty choosing people who are like themselves to populate the departments. And, you know, the first generation of doing this, it wasn't so bad. The faculty got a little bit more left of center, a little bit further away from the population. But if you do this for, you know, 70 years, you suddenly end up with faculty or not so suddenly, but you, you wake up and you end up with faculty who are just totally divorced from the rest of the country because they've just been allowed to kind of self-perpetuate their own, uh, their own ideas and their own proclivities in their departments.
0: I think sometimes that, that the standards have been lowered for so long that a lot of the professors, people who are professors now, are not really scholars in the old sense. Like they don't, they don't even have a mastery of, of their own discipline in the way that a professor in that discipline would have had a mastery, you know, 30 years before or something like that. Um, this is another, <clears throat> excuse me, idea that I hear often from conservatives as well, we need to do away with tenure. And as a tenured English professor, I am always quick to respond, look, when you get rid of tenure, It is not going to be the woke English professor doing race, class, and gender that gets the ax. It's going to be me. Um, And so now I understand the allure of wanting to get rid of tenure because it makes Mm -hmm. some of these these, um, sort of main offenders touchable. But it's a question of like, who would have that power then to decide who stays and who goes? It would fall to woke administrators. And so it would actually end up, in my opinion, purging whatever <laughs> remains of any sort of oppositional culture within the institution. I mean, do you agree with that or is, is you know, is tenure good or, or should
1: we uh, reform it or what? So if I were starting from scratch, I would not use tenure in a university because I think that protections for academic freedom should be codified rather than just relying on these people who can't be fired for almost any reasons at all um in order to protect what we really care about which is you know freedom of inquiry I mean, that's what academic freedom is for it's not and that's what tenure is supposed to be for it's not to protect people who do low academic quality work and you know phone it in um uh, and so I think tenure is the wrong tool to protect academic freedom. I wouldn't use it if I were starting from scratch. That said, you know, knowing that tenure is in the hands of the same people who want professors fired for having unpopular opinions, uh, I, I, I don't think abolishing it is going to create the effects that we want to have. I think you would have to independently protect academic freedom first, and then do away with tenure. And I do think that you know five-year contracts make a lot more sense for for universities in general. Um, But where we are now, um, you know, tenure is still protecting some people who have unpopular opinions. Clearly, it's not protecting everybody. Look at Jonathan Katz; what just happened with him, Um, and so it's not. You know, to someone like you who says, "Well, tenure's protecting me," and I'm like, "Yeah, for now."
0: Right. Wait. I think about that a lot. I mean, it didn't protect. I mean, it did. Ultimately, Charles Nagy got got his job back, but mm-hmm. it didn't stop the university from firing him. You know. Right. Um, yeah. And it didn't do it with cats. I I don't think that tenure will protect me. Right. And um, I mean,
1: look at, look at Ilya Shapiro. He's he's leaving because they basically told him. Like it's it's like two strikes and you're out. If you ever say anything ever again, you're gone. And so I think that it's not, it's the wrong tool, but it's what we have right now.
0: I wrote um, for the Martin Center about my uh, Title IX complaint that was filed against me years back, which was ultimately proven to be fraudulent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I asked a a new administrator um, at my university if there was another complaint against me what role would the original complaint have even though there was no finding right um and they told me that the mere existence of the complaint whether or not there was any finding mm-hmm. is uh, something that gives credence to the new complaint um, right which is crazy you know and so i think that it, well, and it's people just... know
1: that they can weaponize title oh, yeah like
0: yeah absolutely and that's why i say like it's just a question of how bad your university wants to get rid of you. If they want you gone bad enough, they're not going to mm-hmm. let tenure stop them. Yeah. Um, so you've already talked about quite a number of solutions that we could do um, to sort of r- restore the institution. So I won't mm-hmm. ask you that question again, but I think I'll ask you one that might be harder for you. Um, so let's say 30 years from now, 2052, right? Yeah. If all the chips break the way that we, you know, if all the cards fall the way we would want them to, right? mm-hmm. what would the American University look like at that time? Could you describe it? How would it be different, you know?
1: Well, I, I couldn't describe it because there would be such a flowering of different institutions doing different things for different people in an unbundled way that I would have to describe. 50 institutions, 100 models, Um, some of them would look like the little leafy, cloistered Ivy League quads that are in our movies, and people would go there, and they would live the life of the mind, and they would study liberal arts, and there'd be beautiful paintings, and it would be very the traditional residential undergraduate experience, you know, focused on truth, goodness, and beauty, and some would be you know, the opposite of that in every way, where it's very, um, you know, very vocational focused, very career oriented, um, very um, flexible, lots of online, lots of technology, and, you know, in every imaginable step in between. Um, But I think that, you know, and, and also there would be, you know, unknown unknowns. Who knows what could flower if you really had the kind of, you know, market innovation that universities right now are—they're you know, really hamstrung by you know not just the things I've mentioned, accreditation, other federal laws, reporting. You know there are there are a lot of reasons that we don't see the innovation that I would love to see. But if we did, I think we would get we would get a huge diversity in the number of institutions, the types of institutions, and the types of things that they offered, and. It would be very unlike the education landscape today.
0: I have a fantasy about running a school out of a uh, strip mall storefront, you know, um, <laughs> where a university is run more like a karate dojo than than mm-hmm. a, a behemoth institution, you know, right. when, where people would want to come and just hang, you know, and yeah, and sort of intellectually work out with with the the other people in their school, a, a school in the very traditional sense of of the word you know, um, as a group of people who learn together and, and share similar beliefs and attitudes, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You talked about accreditation, which to me is, is a huge factor. I mean, I think that that is the, the, uh, one block that keeps the Jenga, um, you know, tower intact. And, and I think that somehow we need to ensure that students, um, uh, that they can be rewarded for caring less about whether or not accreditation is a thing. Right. But until we solve the student loan bit, that can't really happen. Um, okay. So I asked you, what would it look like at 30 years? And you painted a very beautiful picture for me. My question is, is, is how likely is it that that will come to pass in that time?
1: So we actually are already seeing it for anything that's that, is, that exists for the sake of learning. We have things, uh, we have, there are tons of ways online and in person that you can go learn anything you want to learn. And some of it free, some of it very cheap, uh, some of it, you know, a little bit higher cost, but as long as you're interested in learning just for the sake of learning, it is already out there. And that, and it's beautiful to see. I mean, you know, one example that I think most people will be familiar with is, you know, something like Duolingo. It, I, it's got like 50 something languages now. It's, it's basic level is free. And it also has like, what, 20 competitors for language learning. So if you want to learn a language just for the sake of learning a language, you can go out there and do it. You can get lifetime memberships in like 10 different products. And have spent a total of $2,000 and you can learn 50 languages if you want to put the time in. And that's, that's fantastic, but it's totally unaccredited and nobody's going to give you a degree, even if you are able to, you know, to speak the language like a native.
0: Effectively, you could become a linguist, like have that level of knowledge of languages, you know, and have no, uh, uh, you know, no credential.
1: Right. Right. And I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that, you know, Duolingo is the same as doing like immersion,
0: right?
1: you know, going to Spain for three years and learning it there. But you know what? That's also available unaccredited, you know, just going to Spain, learning Spanish. Um, and so really anything that you want to learn just for the sake of learning, it's already out there. Um, and some of them are, if you look around, a lot of them are directed to homeschoolers. Uh, you know, high school level homeschoolers who are doing college level work. There's a ton of content directed at those people. And it's wonderful. I mean, you can do, you know, the Russian revolution, you can do a course on, um, I I can't even, there are so many things that are flooding into my mind at the same time, and I'm not coming up with any of them. Um, but you know, any topic under the sun, you can find out there from, you know, people with expertise who are willing to teach you. Uh, The challenge is how do you turn that into something with a stamp on it that other people recognize? And that's the challenge that that we face, not is the learning available, because the learning is there. And so some very entrepreneurial folks are trying it in different ways. Um, There are some people down in South Carolina running something called Praxis, which I think is a cool model. Uh, They partner their students with businesses, kind of apprentice style, and then they also do um, a a gen ed type program Um, and they, and students pay for it. You know, they're, they're learning while earning and it gets paid for that way. Um, There's a new unaccredited university, unaccredited university here, right here in Raleigh, where I am, that's opening its doors this fall. Um, called Bailey's University. And they are gonna have, you know, I think open with three or four different majors, their first class of people is gonna have like 10 10 students in it and start from there. And so I think the the question is, can we build a better mousetrap in terms of the credentialing? And people are trying, you know, Microsoft has tried with its kind of, uh, you know, it's Microsoft credentials that you can get. or, or you can get licensed to do QuickBooks. And so there is some that is directly uh, related to the marketplace. But that challenge is much bigger, I think, than just the availability of the knowledge.
0: So I guess this is kind of my, my final question, but I'm gonna be 44 in a couple months. Um, so hypothetically, I have 30 years left of, of work <laughs> ahead of me. Um, and one of the reasons I started this program is because I wonder sometimes if the university as it exists now, if I have 30 more years in me, and (laughs) I I don't know that I do. Um, but I wonder from your perspective, because you probably have a pretty good view of the university as institution at at 35,000 feet, Mm -hmm. how stable is it structurally? Is it, is the crisis acute enough? that within say 10 or 15 years it could sort of collapse of its own weight or are the the mechanisms of of state support and ide- ide- sorry ideological support strong enough to maintain what is a broken system for a long long time what do you think I about think
1: that? I think that this system can probably maintain be maintained for a long time but there will be a lot of individual institutions that close Uh, you know, even as the system is maintained. And I think that the main driver of that is just demographics. There are too many universities chasing too few students. And for the most part, the adult students who they hope will fill the ranks um, of missing 18 to 22 year olds are are disillusioned. They don't believe that going back to college is going to, um, you know, plug some hole that they missed you know, the first time when they were 20. And so I think that demographic decline will force some institutions to close and will force states to do a lot of consolidation, especially states in uh, where they're losing population very quickly, you know, the Northeast and the Midwest, And so we will see a lot of individual institutions go by the wayside, even as we continue kind of propping up this system.
0: So it sounds um, like you're saying that R1 can persist for quite a, some time. The yeah. Tier 3, Tier 4 universities will probably face uh, large-scale closures in the next yeah. 20 years.
1: That, that is my prediction. But at the same time, I am seeing a, a, no, I won't say a large number, but an encouraging number of institutions doing something radically different, which is not taking any federal money. And you know, and blazing their own trail, or you know, or 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 following behind Hillsdale's trail um, to attract a different kind of student. And so, we might, in the midst of all of the you know the various destruction, I think we will see some creation going on at the same time. And so, it's not you know an entirely um, an entirely dismal story. And as I said, if you want to learn something you already can. And so that's, I mean, that's the great news.
0: It's been fantastic talking with you. Jenna Robinson, the president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal in Raleigh, North Carolina. Make sure to uh, subscribe to their newsletter. Um, Jenna, thank you.
1: Thanks. It's been great.